This morning we, we continue through the gospel according to Luke. And we see Jesus continues to teach his disciples what it means to follow him at home, at work, at church. And I, I want to open uh, today with a small section from the third letter of the Apostle John. So if you have your Bibles, open up to almost the very back of it, the third letter of the Apostle John. And he writes to a person named Gaius. And in this letter, he writes this. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome brothers and also stops those who want to and pushes them out of the church. And so John, in part of this letter, he's writing about a man named Diotrephes that puts himself first and he's causing division within the church. You see, he's not acknowledging the proper authority. He's slandering people. He refuses to welcome other Christians and is harassing those that do. And our passage that we're looking at today in Luke comes to a topic that many churches know too well and what we here at Solway may, may know too well as well, and that is division. Particularly, we see in this passage, rivalry that stems from pride. And let me be clear about this. I am not talking about a healthy competitiveness that's innate in a lot of us, especially uh, uh, men, this, this innate competitiveness that does drive us forward as we spur each other on and encourage each other and we get moved forward. That is not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Jesus talks about here. Rather, he's talking about rivalry that stems from pride, the selfishness that hopes for and seeks for someone being brought low. That's what we're looking at today. And this division is caused by this prideful rivalry among individuals and groups. And that's what we see with the disciples, those that walked with Christ. This stirred up in their presence. And then we'll see Jesus respond with truth as to what a follower of Christ, what you and me ought to do and be in these situations. So if you're in Third John, or if you haven't opened your Bible yet, flip back to Luke chapter 9. Just a, a reminder of the context after Keith uh, did a fantastic job last week. It was very encouraging. A little bit of context here, if you remember, Jesus... Uh, was just telling his disciples about his death, his execution is coming. Just told them that. And he told them to let this sink into your hearts. But that's not what they did at all. As one pastor has said, while Jesus spoke of his personal suffering, they argued about their personal glory. And what a, what a, a contrast here. If you move back to the transfiguration, God the Father uh, made a point that you have much to learn. Listen to Jesus. You have much to learn. And that's exactly what, with the same message to us and to the disciples, the rest of Luke. You have much to learn. And we'll see Jesus be teaching the disciples a lot, be teaching us a lot. And so our passage opens up in verse 46 with rivalry among the disciples stemming from pride. So verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. They're arguing who was great. As Jesus was saying, hey, I'm about to die. They're saying, yeah, well, who's the best here? Can you imagine that? Looking at each other, like, hey, who's, who's the greatest here? Maybe they weren't even advocating for themselves, but they were advocating for someone else. Like, hey, 
Peter is far better than James. I mean, James doesn't even know what he is doing. And maybe, if you recall, earlier in chapter 9, Jesus sent them on a commission. And they did some wonderful things, casting out demons, preaching the truth. Maybe they were talking about this, just sitting there, hey, look what I did, bragging. Like, can you imagine, hey, remember, I was the one that cast out the demon. Or, hey, I was the one who preached the truth and many came to Christ. That, that was me. Or someone said, hey, Andrew, he's the one that people liked and followed the most. Not John, that son of thunder with his brother James. Those guys are animals. Can you imagine this going on? And for some of us, this may be the most relatable passage so far in Luke that we're coming to. Maybe God has used you in a major way to have an impact on other people. And you're tempted to kind of strut around. As if, yep, look what I did. Look what I did. Or maybe you're tempted to look down on those who have not done what you've done. Or maybe someone else has had a a large impact on your life and you're tempted to elevate them above everyone else as if they're, they're the greatest. Or you're tempted to look down on others because they are not like that person who had a great impact on you. And this was not uncommon. This was an issue in the church in Corinth. There was division caused by strife and jealousy about who was greater, who was better. Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians, he writes to the Corinthians about this. He says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So just like the disciples, they're arguing, who was better? Well, who's better? Well, Paul's great. Apollos is better. I mean, Bob is greater. Keith is greater. AJ is greater. Alex is greater. The church down the street is greater. But listen to how Paul ends this. He just said that to the Corinthian church, and then he says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so here, the key of the passage, and here we'll see how Jesus answers the disciples this dispute. And here is the key to so many things in our Christian life is this. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. If you've had an impact on someone's life, it was accomplished by God's grace. If someone else had a, an amazing impact on your life that invested so much and you're so much better for it, it was because God's grace worked through them. What is Paul? What is Apollos? What is Alex? Nothing. Nothing but servants. It was, who, it was God who worked through them, who gave the growth. It is all of God's grace. If we remember back at their commission in chapter 9, verse 1, it was Jesus' power that he gave them, the, the, the apostles, to work these, these mighty things, the cast of demons. It was Jesus working through them. So you, the person that has impacted you a lot, me, the, the people down the street, we're all nothing but fragile, cracked jars of clay, And that's all for God's glory because then it's clear that through us, this mess 
It was God's grace worked through it, and God gets the glory. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's been said to not spend a day with your hero because at the end of the day, they would no longer be your hero because you would know them. You would know everything about them and you would, they would not be their hero. You're their hero anymore. Every one of us is tainted with sin. As a Christian, we are justified. We have been t- declared righteous by God, but we continue to sin as long as we live with our sinful nature. As Martin Luther said, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. Simultaneously righteous Sinner, we are declared righteous by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in which we receive Christ's righteousness. In that way, we're declared righteous, but we continue to sin as we are here on earth with our sinful nature. And so it's clear that we need God's grace in everything. As one unknown Puritan has said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So it's all of grace. It is all of grace. So this truth makes rivalry and pride completely irrelevant. It makes no sense because it's all of grace. It is completely by God's grace. And we are the opposite of great. The only thing great about you and me, Christian, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the only thing great. In Matthew 20, you may remember a parable that Jesus shares uh, about the laborers in the vineyard. And so you've got this master over a vineyard, and he goes out. It's a new day. It's time to work. He goes out into kind of the marketplace looking for laborers. And there's a few there, and he makes a deal with them. Hey, come work my garden. I'll give you a denarius, which was the typical uh, money for a day's labor. So he says, come work for me. Work all day. I'll give you a denarius. So they go into the vineyard. A few hours pass by. The master goes out again to the, to the, the marketplace looking for laborers. He comes to some and says, hey, Work the rest of the day, and whatever fee seems best, I'll pay you. They said, okay, I'll send there. And so he does this a couple more times. Goes out, the day's going by, and says, hey, come work for me. Go work the vineyard the rest of the day, and I'll, I'll give you what seems best to pay you. Okay. He comes out at the last hour. There's only one hour of work left. He comes out. He gets some people and says, hey, come work just the last hour, and I'll pay you what seems best. And I said, okay. Now let me pick up with Jesus telling the story. He says this. And on receiving, let me, let me back up here. So the end of the day comes, it's payment time. And those who are hired at the last hour, they just worked one hour. The master's given them a denarius, which is worth a, a full day's labor. And so those who were there all day are, saw this and are like, okay, we're going to get something better here. But they only received a denarius. And then this is what Jesus says. He says, And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give what this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last be first and the first last. And so what is the point? It is all of grace. Those that worked all day, those who worked part of the day, those worked only one hour in this nice cool of the night, the evening, it was all of grace. They got the same amount. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, in the Christian life, all is of grace from the very beginning to the very end. 
And it's forgetting that everything is by grace that leads to jealousy. It leads to pride. It leads, it leads to this rivalry, this entitlement. Well, the truth is that we're, we are all wretched. We are sinful, but yet we are justified because of Jesus Christ alone. As we see in this passage, a way that this pride expresses itself is comparing yourself to others. The comparison game. And nothing good comes from this. And we know this kind of going into it still. Like, hey, if I compare and they're doing better than me, or in my mind they're doing better, then you feel discouraged as if God's not doing enough. And then if you think that you're doing better, then you get filled up with pride. It never works out well. At the end of John, this is probably one of my favorite passages because it's so relatable. At the end of John, when Jesus is resurrected and Peter is getting kind of reinstated after he denied Christ, Jesus is talking with Peter. And Peter kind of starts to slip into this comparison game. John records this. He says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So he sees John. Peter sees John as he's walking with Jesus. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so to this this rivalry, this comparison game, Jesus answers, What is that to you? what I do with that person? What is it to you if I work mightily or not so mightily through this person? What is it to you? Rather, focus on me. Focus on following me. So no good comes from comparing ourselves to others. And no good in the same way comes from comparing other people to other people. Either you'll unhealthily elevate someone above the others or you'll look down on others. And it's completely inaccurate. It's like comparing apples and oranges in, in, in different ways. God has created us differently for different purposes. And this is exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 12. If you remember, uh, Paul writes about the church and he compares it to a body. Uh, Another great passage. There's so many great passages in the Bible. But it's a passage where he says, hey, there's you, that's the no, saying, I'm not much because I'm not an eye. But then you got other people saying, hey, you're not an eye like me. You're just a foot. You're You're not really worth much. And so Paul is presenting there, we got different purposes. God has made us for different purposes, different ways. Some are not going to be a certain way. All are not generals. All are not infantrymen. Not all are nurses. Not all are cooks on the submarine. Not all are the taxpayers back in the nation who's supporting financially. So comparing ourselves to others, nothing good comes from this. Comparing other people to other people, nothing good comes from it. And that's exactly what we're seeing here with the disciples. Rivalry and pride is inappropriate because it's all by grace. And this is something we can rejoice in. If it wasn't by grace, we would not be doing anything good. If it wasn't by grace, and it was just up to me for these sermons, there'd be nothing here for you on Sunday mornings. There'd be nothing. You can be sure that if there's anything bad that I say, it's me. If it's anything good, it's God's grace in everything. And praise God, it's by God's grace. Praise God. So here we see rivalry and pride. We see the spark up with the disciples, and it completely ruins the unity they have in faith and the Spirit, and it makes no sense because it's all of grace. And then the Lord steps in, and he illustrates this. He illustrates that it's all of grace, and then he illustrates how then to live this out. Look at this, verse 47. 
But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Luke says, Jesus knows the prideful reasoning going on in their hearts. This pride is deeply entrenched in their hearts, just as it's deeply entrenched in ours. And what a great reminder that no one does good. No one seeks after God, as Paul says in Romans, without God's grace. A reminder that the person next door, your child, needs God's grace every single day as we do. So Jesus knows their hearts, and so he takes a child. And one thing to know at that time is that children were the low of the low in the society at that time. One reason that they weren't very significant, because there was a great percentage that died before adulthood. They died a lot. And so there's like, well, they're not that important because they could, they could just die off very easily. On top of that, in Judaism, a children under 12 years old cannot be taught the Torah. The, 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 the books of the Old Testament. And so it was considered a waste of time to spend there investing with the child. So Jesus takes this child, grabs them, and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and receives him who sent me. And so listen to what Jesus is doing here. If you receive the child, you receive Jesus, and you receive the Father, the one who sends him. And so right there on the tail end, you see this emphasis on the unity of Jesus and God the Father, the unity of the Godhead. And this child here symbolizes believers. Look at this. Jesus speaks of his union with believers just as he speaks just then of his union with the Father. There, as you receive this one, you receive me just as if you receive me, you receive the Father. So he speaks of the union with the believer. And this is everywhere in the New Testament. Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If you remember two weeks ago in Romans 6, uh, you remember by, in, in our faith, we are joined with Jesus in his death and resurrection, our union with Christ. If you recall, at Paul's transformation, his conversion on the road, uh, road to, to Damascus, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And who is Saul persecuting? The church. He's persecuting believers. One more. And if you remember, at the end of, of Matthew, Jesus, uh, he talks about separating the goats from the sheep. And Jesus tells his people, hey, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was without clothes. You visited me in prison when I was in prison. And they ask, Jesus, what did we ever do this for you? And Jesus says, you did this for me when you did it to the least of these. You did it for one of the least of these. And so what we see here is this union with Christ. So what is Jesus saying? Greatness comes from union with Christ. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. The least of us is great because they're with Christ. They're unified with Christ. Union with Christ. Your greatness is all of grace. And then Jesus says, verse, uh, end of verse 48, For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The least among you is great because he's with Jesus. He's one with him. Rivalry is irrelevant because we're only great because of grace. Now, and then with this vivid illustration of the child, Jesus then shows how this greatness that we have in Christ is lived out, how it's expressed. There is absolutely no benefit 
for one of those disciples to receive that, that kid, that child. There was no benefit. It was only a benefit that would be given. That's the only way the benefit would be. And so we see here that true greatness is being in Christ. And from this, we seek to lift others up, to build them up. In other words, true greatness expressed is not about stature or position or being thought well of by others, but about elevating others above you, seeking to make them the best they can be in Christ, which is the exact opposite of the rivalry that we see here with the disciples. Many times... We, we look around comparing ourselves to others and the way to make us feel good will push them down so that we stand f- further up. In the same way when we compare uh, other people to other people, in our minds, we tear down the other person so the other person that we like or are rooting for is above them. But Jesus calls us rather to build up the person. To build the person you're comparing to, don't compare, just build them up. And we get the perfect picture of this in Philippians 2. If you want to turn there, uh, go ahead. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read a, a, a bigger passage because it is a beautiful picture of what it means in humility. Philippians chapter 2. I'm beginning in verse 3. I'll give you a few seconds to turn there. Paul writes this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, I can't stop there. This is too good. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As to true greatness comes in Christ and is expressed by concerning ourselves with others, that they're more important than me, and seeking to build them up in the faith. Greatness is humility, which is the exact opposite of selfishness. And so in answer to this, this prideful rivalry that the, Jesus sees among the disciples, he illustrates with a child, it's all of grace. And this greatness you have in Christ is expressed through serving others and seeking to make them the best they can be. Amen? Yeah, it doesn't stop there. Now we get an example of this pride. Right immediately following this, we get an example of the pride and then Jesus, an example of what it actually means to be great and express that greatness. Look at this. This is immediately, so (laughs) I can't get over this. Right after Jesus says, hey, I'm about to die. Yep, me, I'm about to die. The disciples hear that? That's cool but which of us are the greatest? And then after that, Jesus is like, hey, that's not what it means to be great. It means to be great is to be in union with me and expressing that is making others be- the best they can be in Christ. They hear that, that sounds good. Now look here, this what, what we're doing. So verse 49, I'm sorry. John answers, look at this. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Don't miss that. That's an important phrase there. And we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. 
And so Luke writes here that John answers. I am not sure, and, and not, it's not really a good indication of whether John is presenting an objection to what Jesus is saying, or John may be saying, starting to feel a little guilty, said, hey, this is what's going on. Like, like, is, like kind of feeling guilty, confessing this. Don't know which one it is. But listen to this. He says this. They were just told to receive the least of these, this child. That's what a great, a greatness expressed is, building them up. And they were just out there excluding someone who's not running with their group. Important to note is the person casting out demons wasn't of the twelve, but they were a follower of Christ. He was casting out demons in your name, in the name of Christ. This is not a phony exorcist like the sons of Sceva back in Acts 19. That is not what this is. This is a follower of Christ who's not a part of the twelve. And so what we have here, again, is rivalry among the followers of Christ. And it's a specific type of rivalry, a group rivalry. It's groups going on here. And this can be incredibly dangerous because it can become very entrenched because now you feel justified. There's others with you. I mean, how could I be wrong if so-and-so and so-and-so agree with me? And it becomes very dangerous. And so the disciples did the opposite of humility. There's one who's a believer in Christ, who's not in their group, and who's working for Christ, serving Christ, and casting out this demon, and they try to stop him. And their reasoning is because they're not part of the group, because he does not follow with us. Therefore, we'll push him down. Again, I'm going to emphasize this again, because this is very important. This person was a follower of Christ. This was not someone that opposes Christ. It is not talking about false teachers because we're committed everywhere in the Old Testament, New Testament to oppose false teachers in that type. So that's not what's going on here. But this is a follower of Christ who is simply not in the group. So this is referring to that spirit of rivalry that we can have uh, among groups here, here at church, among churches, the spirit of rivalry that isn't a healthy competitiveness spring each other on, but rather, I want you to fail so I look good. Consider this, because we, we read this. We're not just here to, to listen and that's it, but we want, okay, searching our hearts, consider this as you're discerning this. Let's say, and I believe it's true, that you've been praying for a long time for maybe a lost neighbor, a lost family member, a lost friend, you're praying for them to trust in Christ. Or you're praying for a family member you know or a church member you know that just really needs encouragement or, or needs some kind of building up like that. And you've been praying a long time for them. What if God uses someone that you do not like to do exactly that? What if the person that you despise the most leads that person to Christ? What if the person that you cannot stand is the one that God uses to encourage that person that you've been praying for. Or how about this? You deeply desire, which I believe is true, God to do a wonderful, amazing work in northern Minnesota. You're praying, you've been praying a lot for the God Spirit to just sweep through soul away those who are complacent in their faith to be stirred on and encouraged and mighty for God, those who are not saved, that God would convict and bring many souls to salvation. You've been praying a lot for this. Now, what if God uses not you, not your group, but someone else that you don't really like or a group that you don't really like, and he uses them to do exactly that? 
What if God uses the church down the road to do amazing work in Soe and does not use one bit Soe Bible Chapel? What if God uses and does a great work in Soe, not you, but the person that you don't really like very much? Here's the question. Would you still want it? Would you still want God to do those things that the person that you don't like very much, that's who God chooses to use and not you at all? If God uses the church down the road to spark an amazing work of God, salvation, people come to Christ, and does not use you or your group or or our church at all, would we still want it? If God uses the one that you despise, he uses him to save the person you've been praying for. Would you still want it? Because the question exposes, do we really want these things or do we simply want us to look good? We simply want our group to look better than the other group. And that's exactly what we see here with the disciples. And then Jesus responds with how they're to express this greatness and humility towards those within the faith. Verse 50. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus says, do not stop him. And this, again, it further shows and affirms that this person that's not in the group was a genuine believer because Jesus would never stop the disciples from rebuking a false teacher because that's commanded everywhere, everywhere in the Old Testament, New Testament, is to stop false teachers. So clearly that's not what Jesus is doing here. But this is a believer that's just not in their group. Jesus says, for the one who is not against you is for you. If that person in your church or the person in a different church, that person in your church but is in a different group, if they are in the faith and they are not sinning against you, they are for you, Jesus says. Interpersonal rivalry among believers is not a trait of discipleship. Cooperation is. Rather than seeking to gain or protect your turf, Jesus calls us to invite other believers onto it. And so the emphasis here is on cooperation among believers. But please uh, keep this in context. This is not a blank check of acceptance of anyone. Later, we'll see in Luke 11, we'll get to that when we get there. But like I said, we are commanded over and over and over in the New Testament to not unite with those who, who profess against Christ, do not unite with those who profess the name of Christ, but then speak not truth and do not live it out. We do not, we're not supposed to unite with them. That's clear. But those who are in the faith, who are, professes Christ, lives for Christ, we are to cooperate with them. Uh, one Christian scholar in history has said this. He says, He does not enjoin us to give a loose rein to rash men and to be silent while they intermeddle with this and the other matter according to their own fancy and disturb the whole order of the church for such licentiousness so far as our calling allows must be restrained. I have to stop. If you're wondering if I looked up the, how to pronounce licentiousness, you're right. I practiced it. It's a hard word. Moving on. But they're saying, this doesn't mean you let anyone room free. That's not what it's saying. It's not a blank check. But the call is to embrace those who profess faith in Christ, who are teaching and living out that truth, to cooperate with them and seek for their success in that. Think of Paul. Uh, to the letter... To the Philippians, uh, I believe Paul's in jail at this time. Paul rejoices. He rejoices in the truth that the truth. Uh, he, uh, he rejoices that the truth is being preached. 
even though that those preaching it are hostile to, to Paul. Imagine that. He's, he's rejoicing. Yes, they preach the truth, and that I rejoice, but they hate me, and they're hostile to me, and yet they, he rejoices. So cooperation among believers. Jesus says, do not stop that man because he was a disciple of Christ. And so we see here, and I want to get into this just a little bit. This will just be a little short. It's the essential truths of the faith that unite us. It's the essential truths of the faith that unite us. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about the unity of faith. He talks about confessing the same body, the same spirit, the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father. That's what unifies us. And I say those words because that's the words that Paul writes there. There are essential truths that we must agree upon in order to be Christians, to be unified, and to cooperate but there are non-essential truths that are incredibly important, are incredibly important, but we can differ on, but yet still be united with Christ. The obvious question is, what is essential, what is non-essential? And for the sake of time, let me give you what I think is right. And you can disagree with it, that's fine. And we can talk about that. I think the essential truths that unify us can be summed up in the Apostles' Creed. Go read it. And in the Reformed view of the person and work of Christ, that is what is the, the essential truths. And if we don't agree on this, we cannot cooperate. And I can almost 100% say we all agree on these things. But let me say this. If you walk out today thinking that doctrine and truth and those non-essentials, ah, I don't need to worry about those, that is horrible. I would have done a huge grave mistake do not let the term not essential make you think it's not important. I don't need to spend time looking into it. It doesn't affect most of my, uh, much of my life. Because the truth is, yes, it incredibly infects how you, how you live your life. But they are not essential, meaning they are not needed in order to be a Christian, in order to be cooperative among Christians. Does that make sense? We could spend forever there, but I wanted to go through that quickly. Or just for the time's sake. Here we go. So we see here, Coming, coming towards the end of here, we see here we must appreciate genuine service unto Christ. We must distance ourselves from heresy and we need biblically informed discernment to know the difference. And I hope you can see we can disagree on much among us and debate on these things as we ought, yet united with Christ in humility, not rivaling against other groups, rather seeking to support each other in Christ. And if we're honest, this prideful rivalry, it does not surface as that person or group is just horrible and I want them to fail. That Obviously, it does, that, this rivalry does not express itself as that. Rather, as we see, all sin comes under a cover. As the scriptures say of Satan, that he disguises himself as an angel of light. Just like that, prideful rivalry comes in under a sanctified guise. Such as, that person is not very spiritual, thus... They don't know what is best, therefore, I just want the best for you. So that person doesn't know much about the Bible, thus, it, it comes under the sanctified guise, and we need to, be, we need to discern that. Hey, listen to this. These things may very well be true. This might be true. That person may not know much. That person may not know what's best. That's true. It may be true, but prideful rivalry seeks to push them down, to stifle or stifle, however you say it, to hinder while this humble love, this greatness expressed, seeks to build up. And so we see here, the spirit of prideful rivalry attempts us to look down on those not in our group. 
But Jesus calls us to express the greatness we have in him, to express it by not hindering, but supporting them and wanting them to succeed. And so, like we saw in the beginning, Diotrephes, he liked to put himself first, as John wrote to Gaius, which is the opposite of humility, and humility is greatness expressed. This prideful rivalry, as we saw in the disciples, ought not to be in the church, because it's by grace alone we are what we are. It is by God's grace alone. Anything good is by God's grace. So we're called, do not compare yourself to other people. Do not compare others to others. Focus on Christ and following Him. Do not seek the success of your group, whoever that is, at the expense of another, pushing them down, other brothers and sisters in Christ. Seek to make those that you don't really like better. And these are the people that we ought to be focused on all the more. So we can disagree on non-essentials and continue to debate, but not losing sight of the unity we have in Christ. And here's the good news. If you're like, wow, this is rough. Here's the good news. You are not great at all. I am not great at all. But Jesus Christ is great. And in him, we have greatness. Jesus humbled himself, becoming a, becoming a man, dying on a cross for the sins of God's people. In humility, he selflessly died for me and you, Christian. And as you and I inevitably fail this week to express this greatness and this selflessness, as we fail inevitably this week with our spouse, with our, our kids, with our coworkers, we can take comfort knowing we are still declared righteous because of Jesus Christ alone. God looks to Jesus and not us for us to be justified with God. Our position with God, Christian, it's because of Jesus Christ alone, in that we rejoice. In that we can get up and go on by the Spirit, by God's grace. Amen? Amen. If you're here this morning and you're not following Christ, you're living for yourself, you're living for your sin, you are on a road to destruction. And you will face the Lord Jesus on judgment. And the call is to repent, to turn from your sin, and to flee to the cross for mercy. And if you want to talk more about that, I will be here at the service, the elders will be here at the service, and we would love to talk with you about that. And so from this passage, we see rivalry and pride is completely irrelevant because it's all by grace in Christ. And it ought not to be, rivalry ought not to be in our church because we are the unity we have in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Lord, we are aware of the sin that we have, how not great we are, Lord. And so, Lord, we take comfort that in you we are forgiven, in you we are great. And, Lord, we just praise you. Lord, thank you, God. I pray as we go out this week, as we see our sin coming through, as we see uh, these desires for not what is according to your will, Lord, may we take comfort knowing that in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ, our old nature has been crucified. Lord, may your grace go with us. Uh, may we joyfully depend on you all the more, knowing that it's by grace. And Lord, we, we pray this in your name. Amen.